This episode of the Black Doctors Podcast is brought to you by Empath IQ. Empath IQ provides reputation management and marketing tools to improve relationships between you and your patients. Their software platform encourages and curates positive reviews, enhancing your online reputation. Visit www.empathiq.io and mention the show to receive a special discount just for signing up. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host. This week, I'm so excited to be speaking with Dr. Tracy Asamoa. She is a psychiatrist, but so much more than that, as her career has taken her to a spot where she's able to help mentor and lead physicians, as well as women and encourage wellness in their lives. Dr. Asamoa, so excited to hear from you about your journey to medicine and how your current practice works. Thank you so much for joining on the show. Thank you for having me. So please, uh, we usually start by discussing how you came to to be in medicine. Yeah. Well, I am one of those people who wanted to become a doctor when I was a little kid. I And I had the parents who, as soon as they heard an inkling of having a kid who wanted to go in medicine, they grabbed on. They were more than happy to encourage that journey and push it along. And so I was probably... 11 or 12 when I first started thinking of becoming a physician. And I actually at that time had a pretty clear sense that I wanted to work with kids. I knew that um, I was really drawn to working with kids who were struggling, who were um, in underserved communities, who didn't have a lot of resources and really wanted to understand how I could help there. I think in part because my mom is a social worker. And so I grew up around that world. And she worked with um, folks dealing with substance use disorders and worked in the criminal justice system. And so I really had a sense of how that could impact families and impact kids. And she was very open talking to us about some of the things that she um, saw in her work. And so I knew pretty early on that I also wanted to do something like that. I also am the type of person and I'm admittedly a perfectionist and I push myself a lot. And especially when I was young, I had a very rigid idea of what becoming a physician looked like. So it was literally high school, college, medical school, residency, and I didn't take any breaks. And once I got onto the idea, I kind of convinced myself that I had to go straight through all the way. Um, and so I I did make one detour. I initially thought I was going to become a pediatrician and got to medical school and realized that I wasn't super interested in kind of the traditional, you know, physical exams and, you know, hands-on approach to medicine. I really wanted to hear the stories of the people that I was um working with. And I really wanted to understand how I could help 
um, the kids and the families that I was taking care of live lives that just felt a little bit better. Wasn't so interested in having a kid cough and sneeze in my face or checking labs or listening to lungs or feeling bellies. And once I figured that out, then mental health just made a lot of sense. I was really able to dig into people's stories in a way that felt that felt um, connected and that really felt like a place that I could sit and understand and, tr- and try to help. You ended up going to the University of California, San Francisco for yep. school school. And yeah. uh, that was uh, right around uh, 1999, 2000. Mm-hmm. Well, I was in medical school 95 to 99. I'm even a little bit older than that. <laughs> and then residency started in 99. And, and where'd you go for residency? UCLA. Mm-hmm. If you had to compare residency then to residency now, You know, I'm going to start with the hopeful piece and compare it to literally right now and seeing what I've seen over the past year or two with more attention to physician wellness and burnout that maybe some of that is starting to creep into medical education and and how training happens. I don't know if it's quite there yet. I can be hopeful about that. And having spoken to some program directors who are interested in that, I know that it's there and that's opening up. Um, I also feel like it's so much more competitive on the flip side. I, I, my, my husband is an ER doc and we often joke like, would we be able to get into our programs if we apply? <laughs> because it, we just hear stories of how difficult and how competitive and how much pressure there is. And so, you know, even if there is um, a move towards bringing wellness into physician life and, and training, I also think there's an incredible amount of pressure that students and trainees are under both from the systems that they work within and also from what they place themselves under. And, um, you know, I thought I was under a lot of pressure during training, but it just seems like it's so much more intense now. Um, the expectations seem different. And so, you know, I do wonder about that. I really do wonder about trainee health and medical student health and wellness from that standpoint. Yeah. And then how was it back then? Because the duty hours rule was it was in effect, right? It was no. In fact, it was interesting because it was just starting to be discussed as I was transitioning out of training. So I was, you know, during the time when it was Q two, Q three. Um, for for psych, we didn't have Q two too much, but I do remember a poor neurosurgery resident who I think was in his third year. And they had some shuffling in their program and he was doing Q2 call and he was a wonderful, wonderful guy, wonderful resident, very kind and thoughtful, but exhausted. And, you know, clearly if I would have known him better, probably would have heard stories of how burnout was just already creeping up. You know, but no, there weren't really, you You could, you know, you were there as long as it took to get the job done and there weren't really limits on it. And there were, you know, limits on how long that took and how frequent you were there overnight. That wasn't really where the emphasis of the priority was. And so I imagine that's different. I'm not in medical education now, so I don't know as, you know, I, I've heard and kept up a little bit and I know the hours are a little bit different. Um, I don't know exactly what it looks like now, but I know that piece hopefully has gotten to be a little bit more reasonable because, you know, we all know that if you're not sleeping and you're not resting, you are not learning, you are not making decisions as well as you could, you're not as sharp, you're not, I mean, it's just, you're not useful to yourself. 
or to the people that you're, you know, you're on a team with or that you're learning from in a way that if you were just a little bit more rested, you could be so much more effective and so and, and learn, which is what, you know, trainees are there for. Absolutely. But you persevered, you finished uh, your training and you stepped I, out into your first job, which, you know, looking over your kind of bio and your website, you talked about a toxic situation that you ended up in shortly after starting your practice. Was this part of your first job? Well, so, yeah, so I had kind of an interesting um, trajectory towards my private practice now. So my first job actually was with a university, a major university medical center. Um, My husband was in training, so I just went to the, and we left the state for his training. And so I just went ahead and applied and was able to get a position in the Department of Psychiatry at the place that he was training. And Honestly, I actually, I remember that being a a pretty decent first job. The only thing that I would say and recommend to trainees coming out is I took whatever contract they gave me. I read it, you know, I said, well, I guess this is what I'm going to be doing and how much they're going to be paying me and didn't really negotiate. And, And I don't remember the exact phrasing, but I know that the phrasing on the contract as it was describing all of the responsibilities I would have, had a line that basically to the effect said, and whatever else we decide you should do. And so, you know, that really opens you up for a lot. But as someone who was fresh out of training, like I said, I went straight through. So I was, you know, I had just me, I I think I just turned 30. I kind of thought that that was what I was supposed to do. And so didn't really feel empowered to advocate for myself. Fortunately, it was, a, it was a department that was fairly supportive to the faculty there at that time and the junior faculty. And so I didn't felt like that was necessarily um, problematic. I did, once we moved from that, um, from where well, he was how training. How were you at that? There for three years. Okay. Yeah, I was there for three years. And then we moved to Texas and I worked in a couple of different places in Texas. I worked in residential treatment um, for, I think, maybe just a little under a year. I was in a facility that um, I felt really uncomfortable with. I didn't feel comfortable with their practices. They didn't feel like they were giving good care. And so um, I didn't stay there. But I did eventually find a position at um, a a community-based integrated healthcare system. And the mission of this um, system was great. They really did describe providing centralized kind of homes of care for um, under-resourced communities. And they would have primary care, behavioral health, kind of all located in the same physical location. And so that was um, a position that I was really excited about because it really resonated with what I wanted to do as I saw myself practicing. That was the position, unfortunately, that was pretty toxic. Um, it, it was a place where there was very little autonomy or agency for providers from, you know, the, the administrative staff to uh, administrative front desk staff, not the managing supervising staff, to the, you know, the, the physicians, to the nurse practitioners, to the nurses. I mean, there was, there was very little in the way of supporting us being able to say how we thought we could best do our jobs. And, and 
there were some very basic things that we weren't supported in. And unfortunately, there were also some um, issues with impropriety that happened at kind of higher levels that led to, you know, it trickled down to the pressure being on the providers to make up for some of the things that were going on at the top. And it became a really difficult situation. There wasn't a lot of support for the providers. And so that was unfortunately a place that, although I loved the mission, I wasn't able to see myself at long term. I was actually there for five years, though, before I realized, yeah, before things really started to shift, it grew really rapidly in a short period of time. So when I joined it, it was just a couple of clinics. And at its largest was getting close to 30 clinics. And so it had a rapid period of expansion. And I think it just didn't do it in a way that was, um, I think, the best way to expand the clinic. So if we, uh, obviously no names, but if we had to get a little more specific, as that relationship started to shift, because I noticed, um, like you mentioned, the short period of time you were at the university or health system, Mm -hmm. uh, three years where you have kind of a, a finite amount of time, you can kind of take a hit on that contract. Yeah. I know I made mistakes my first kind of job coming out of residency. Yeah. And, you know, as long as you're not signing your life away, you know, you, you take the L and, and you're better next time. Mm-hmm. But as time went on in this job, you're at for five years. What did that external pressure start to look like? Like how would that affect your day? Well, I'll, I'll tell you this interesting. So having learned um, that I should always try to negotiate when I took that position at this um, uh, this this federally funded clinic, I negotiated my salary. I was the first child psychiatrist there. And so I basically went in saying, this is what I expect for an hourly based on, you know, where what I've been making and um and the work I'm going to be doing and how long I've been practicing. And, and um, I was part-time. Um, I, was empl- I was an employee, but I based um, what I wanted to be compensated based on an hourly expectation, and I got it. So that was one thing that was really encouraging was just kind of starting to learn as, you know, as you get out into practice and, you, you know, you have one or two positions and you really start understanding – where you have a little bit of power really trying to step into that and and ask for it. You know, you never know what happens until you ask. Um, You know, and the first couple of years, again, when it was a small system, I think it really did do what it set out to do. Um, the issues came as it expanded and, and how that, and, and the issues became, um, financial pressures that trickled down to, um, patient encounters, how many patients we are expected to see for how long, and also the additional support because we were working in under-resourced communities, we really wanted to have support like case management and those sorts of things. And, you know, and we would, put together um, recommendations for things that would be helpful, how, you know, things, things as basic as how long we thought appointments should be, how frequently our families and, and, and the, the kids that we were taking care of should have therapy appointments and how, you know, how long those should be. And those, you know, those, those requests and were just not heard. We were told that, you know, this was the, the, what they had decided was the way it was going to be and that we could stay or leave. And I had, 
even probably a year or so when, you know, when I'd been there a couple of years and then things started to shift, I had set out and I had talked to my husband about this, the things that would result in me having to leave. Um, because I just decided there just wasn't, you know, there was just a certain line past which I would not feel comfortable practicing. And if I ever got to that point, then I knew that I would not feel comfortable staying. And once it got to that point, I told them that I was going to have to resign and and knew at that point that I was going to have to really think hard about what the next step would be. I had worked in lots of different types of systems. I'd worked with two medical schools. I had worked in residential treatment, inpatient, outpatient, community-based. I'd kind of tried a lot of different things and still wasn't really finding how I wanted to practice being you know, it wasn't represented in the community and in the positions I was seeking in a way that I felt I could do my best work. And so this was a point for me to stop and say, okay, so what do I really want? And I'll throw in another caveat that that played a role in this. I was diagnosed um, going on probably about 15 or 16 years ago with an autoimmune disorder. So part of my expectations with me being able to do my best work is what I can physically do and what I felt would allow me to work in a way that was sustainable. So I took all of those factors into account as I decided to leave this position and start to explore what was next. Yeah. And, you know, life throws a bunch of different things at you and we have to react to these things. And and you took this, uh, toxic situation and and from it you're able to launch your career absolutely i mean completely different i left and because um you know because my my husband at the time was working and you know we were we were fine financially i was you know i was fortunate enough to be able to take a little bit of time to to think about what i wanted to do next i didn't have to jump into another position i actually did a um, utilization review and chart reviews as i just kind of just you know i decided that i wasn't sure if i wanted to work clinically i wasn't sure i wanted to stay in medicine what that might look like um I didn't know if I just needed to really be clear about how I would practice and only work in settings that would allow me to practice that way. And so I took a couple of months and that is actually when I first discovered coaching. I started just looking at different things that I could possibly do that might be either clinic, me, clinical medicine or, you know, medicine, but not doing direct clinical care are completely different. And coaching was something that I came across as, you know, potentially interesting. I liked the different approach to supporting people, you know, who wanted to work towards their goals. And, um, but at that time, which was like eight or nine years ago, coaching and medicine just really wasn't a thing, or at least it wasn't a thing I could figure out. Um, and I had some biases about coaching at that time. I, I always pictured like Tony Robbins standing on a stage selling these like $20,000. I'm going to change your life and you're going to go do this packages. And I'm like, Ugh. I'm like, I can't do that. That doesn't, you know, I don't know who I would be serving. I don't know who I would be helping. And so I explored it, but I put it on the back burner for a little while and ultimately decided that what I really wanted to do was just to see if I could create a private practice where I could care for patients and families in the way that I felt really good about and in a way that was sustainable. So that's what I ultimately decided to do. So you, uh, and you stayed in the city you were at at that time. I did, you know, the city. So I live in Austin. That's where my private practice is. The, the city that I 
was working in um, in the the community based clinic was in the city a little bit north of here. You know. Effectively, it didn't make that much of a difference because the other thing I learned when I signed that contract um, for that position was to, I would not agree to a non-compete clause. So there were just little things that, you know, again, going back to having this, you know, this wasn't my first job. This was now my third job. And I kind of understood the things that at least were non-starters for positions that I would take at that point. And so, you know, in addition to at least trying to negotiate my salary and the days and hours that I was able to work, um, also not being locked into a non-compete clause, because I know that can really cause a lot of people difficulties if they do ultimately decide to leave. And so, yeah, so I opened up my practice a little bit closer to where we live. At that point, I had young kids in school and needed to be available and present for them. Yeah, so what are some of the fonder memories you have of opening your practice? You know, one of the one of the nicest things, well, I, I, it depends how you look at it. So I, at the time that I left, I had a few good friends slash colleagues, one who'd actually trained with me in residency, and we both ended up moving here to Austin, and one that I met through the, uh, a psychologist that I met um, at, the, at the clinic that I worked in, and then another was a fellow child psychiatrist. And we all, within a year or so, transitioned into private practice. And so one of the things that was really just, you know, it was exciting, but it was also comforting was to have peers around me who were going through the same thing so we could support each other. And I had people that I could bounce ideas off of. And I just loved the idea of building a practice based on how I thought medicine should be practiced and how I thought mental health should be practiced. So I could see patients for as long as I wanted to. The setting was where I wanted the setting to be. Yeah, I could see patients as frequently as I needed to and partner with families in different ways. And so I, I just really liked all of that about it. I, If I'm honest, I think this is the, I, the Gen X in me. I just could not see doing EMR. And so I decided to do paper charts. Um, I decided to be really old fashioned and say, I'm just going to, I like writing. I'm a writer. I, um, that's another hat that I wear. And but I actually like physically writing. I said, it's my own practice. I'm going to physically write my notes. So I physically wrote my notes and kept paper charts that I could hold and see and look through. And so just having the autonomy and the flexibility and being able to be present in the community in a different way, because when you're in private practice, especially when you're opening, when you're doing a lot of getting to know who you're going to get referrals from, who you're going to refer to, you know, for child mental health, um, adolescent mental health, you're getting to know the schools. And so it was, to me, really fun being able to get in, you know, get involved and integrated into the community that way. And how long were you practicing psychiatry before you branched off and looked again into the coaching aspect of your career? Yeah, I, you know, I, so probably about four, you know, three or four years of just doing my psychiatric practice before coaching kind of found its way into my life again. And so um, for a while, it was, you know, I was just building up my practice and focusing on that being my long-term plan before I decided that, you know, coaching hadn't quite let go of me. It was still kind of back they're calling. And so um, about three to four years into it, I started 
getting interested again and kind of looking into that again. Yeah. And so did you already know what areas you wanted to, you know, lean into and, and share with people or did you decide to coach and then, then find it, which came first? No, you know, I think that one of the reasons I ultimately went back into coaching is because my route from, you know, from my first job to private practice and then ultimately into coaching and writing was so circuitous and and filled with so you know many points of uncertainty and and not quite knowing what the best steps would be and i really felt that there were probably a lot of women physicians who had the same experience that i did that maybe they you know had done all of the things that they were supposed to do you know checked all the boxes went to school residency got the job and still felt like this isn't it you know, either they were in a toxic environment experiencing burnout or just wanted to change or wanted to, you know, practice medicine in a different way or not practice medicine at all, but didn't really have an idea about how to kind of see that journey forward. Uh, and so for me, coaching was a way to say, look, I've been there. I've done it all kinds of different ways. I've had some coaching around it. And wow, there's actually a way to do this that's a bit easier than just kind of trial and error. Like you can actually, in a very um, systematic, deeply thought through way, figure out what the next step is. Um, not that it's perfect, not that it's the exactly right stuff, but you can do it in a way that feels like you're really thinking through your decisions and you're getting support with it and you're being, you know, you're opening your mind and considering all the possibilities. And I really wanted other women physicians to have that experience. And so how did you get started or, or you know, how was that interaction with your first client? Oh, well, you know, I have some great friends who are physicians. So my first clients were actually friends who are also physicians. So you would have to ask him how that, them, how that first interaction was. I imagine that it was pretty clumsy. (laughs) And, but you know what? I, you know, what I, I learned all through my coaching training is that you don't have to be a phenomenal, amazing coach that's like interviewed on talk shows to give people something of value, to support someone and help them make a decision. And I do, you know, realize that even though my technique was pretty, you know, pretty green, that the the physicians, the women that I worked with did make some good choices and, and have some um, aha moments and figure out things about their life that they wanted to do different. Um, I'm a, you know, it's been a, f- it's been some years now, so I think I've gotten much better at it, but I, you know, it was, it was fun learning. It was really fun understanding who I am as a coach and, and how I can use my background in mental health to inform, um, you know, I, to inform what I do as a coach, I don't do therapy with my clients. It's, you know, it's a very different role that I play, but I am certainly using my background and, you know, all of the things that I've spent these last couple of decades learning and understanding to inform how I understand the person that I'm working with. I was about to say the person sitting across from me, but now it's the person on the screen or on the other end of the phone. And so how does it feel for you when you're working with somebody and you see them start making progress in those areas that you're working on? Yeah, I I have to say, I am so energized by sitting with my clients and coaching. I, you know, I feel like this is something I was called to do. It chose me. I didn't choose it because every time I meet with someone, 
regardless of where we end up, it's, I always just get this experience of just being, first of all, just so much gratitude that they're trusting me to do that work with them and then excitement over witnessing what they're discovering. I also really just get as excited as they do about the things that they figure out that they didn't know were there or things that they uncover that they weren't aware of. It's just, it's, it's fun. It's interesting. Um, and it's always different and new. And so, you know, it's just a different way of showing up for people and supporting people as they're trying to figure their lives out. Yeah. And currently, what specific area do you provide coaching in? Yeah. So I specifically focus on supporting women and usually women who have been in their career for a bit through transitions. And so it could be career transitions. I've had clients who wanted to leave positions because of burnout or toxic work environments and are really looking to understand what's next and how do they move forward. Um, But also supporting women who maybe want to take leadership roles and aren't quite sure how to step into that. I do. I'm, there's a couple of organizations that I coach with um, that are, that do more leadership coaching and, and support. And so in that you know, in that arena, it's more of helping people understand what will help them be the leader that they want to be, what help, you know, what allows a person to be a really effective resonant leader. And I, and I also support women just who, who are just trying to figure out how to navigate all of the different rules in their lives that they serve. You know, women physicians and women professionals are often a partner or a spouse to someone. They're a daughter. They're often a parent. They're involved in their communities. And I, you know, I really try to partner with women to understand how to hold all of that together. It's funny. It's, you know, the term that that we've all heard is, you know, the work-life balance or finding balance in your life. And and I really try to steer from balance and think about more about wholeness because when I picture balance, I picture a scale and the way you can balance the scale is to take things off or you can just put more things on each side. So if you realize you're doing a job where, you know, you're working 60 or 70 hours a week because you just have a lot of clinical responsibilities, if your balance is, and now I got to squeeze in five days of exercise and making sure, you know, I have date night and going to all of my kids games, you just keep adding things to each side of the scale. So it's really looking at wholeness. You know, you consider yourself an entire pie. You only have a certain number of pieces. You can decide how big each slice is, but you only have that one whole pie to work with. So there's no just continuing to add stuff on. It really is understanding how do you prioritize, understand how to make decisions about how you lead your life based on what your identity is, what your values are, and how do you use that to kind of understand your whole self. So Dr. Asamoah, as you've grown and built your uh, mentoring and and coaching networks, um, where can people go if they're interested in some of the topics that you offer and cover and they want to strengthen their career or make transitions or even become better parents, where can they go to find your services? Absolutely. So my coaching website is tracyasamoacoaching.com. So just my first and last name, coaching.com. I also have an Instagram page. I, I have to say I'm not a huge social media fan, but if, if anybody out there likes Instagram, then it's just my name, Tracy Asamoah, MD. And I try to put some of the stuff that I talk about on my website there. On my website, I have a blog that I write um, 
a couple of times a month. And so that has a lot of information about some of the things that I'm talking about and the things that I coach on. And I also have a newsletter that I send all sorts of tips and life hacks about the types of things that I work with clients on. And if you had to go back to yourself when you were there in residency at UCSF, what would you say or what advice would you give yourself going forward? Oh, I think the first thing, you know, the first thing that I would just start with self-compassion, like just, you know, it's going to be okay. Give yourself a break. You are not the only one struggling. You know, there is help out there. I, you know, I wasn't good about asking for help or looking for other people who might be struggling just to have, you know, that sort of support. So I, I would start there. You know, if I think if I would have just started there, then a lot of the things that I struggled with going through training would have at least been brought out into the open and I could have become more aware about them and gotten a little bit more help with them. What other advice would you have to, you know, residents and medical students that are out there listening? Yeah. You know, here's what I will say. I thought that going to college, then medical school, then residency and becoming an attending physician was like the goal. That's, you know, that's the finish line. You make it and you've done it. And it isn't. It's really just another, it's just another transition point in your journey. Becoming a physician, you know, completing training does not have to define the rest of your life at that point. You can use that as a set of tools, skills, and insight that you've gained to do whatever you want to do. Um, And, you know, medicine and the journey through training and the journey into medicine is hard for a lot of people. It really is. If, if you're feeling like you're struggling and you think everybody else has it together, they don't. You know, they really don't. Everybody struggles at different times and everybody deals with it differently and everybody carries it differently. And, you know, that's, that's just kind of the culture that medicine creates. But so many people are also struggling and just needing to figure figure out how to make it through to the end. And so, you know, just knowing that and giving yourself a break and, and you know, saying, okay, you know, first of all, I can, I've done lots of hard things. I can do this hard thing, but if I need help, that's okay too. And I can find that. Fantastic advice. Dr. Asimo, thank you so much for coming on the Black Doctors Podcast and for sharing your story and, and the things that you've learned along the way and how you've been able to take what you've learned and help other people and we'll definitely include these links in our show notes so if anybody's out there is looking for coaching and the support that you offer they can uh, get a hold of you thank you it's been a great conversation i really enjoyed our time and thank you for having me the black doctors podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen tune in next week for another episode of the black doctors podcast with dr stephen bradley your friendly neighborhood anesthesia.